Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This is Brian in Buffalo, New York, sort of United States of America. And with me as always is... Lauren from Swansea. How are you, Brian? Are you feeling better than the last time we spoke? Ah, you know, mentally, no. Physically a little bit better, but... uh, no, it's it's a crazy, crazy, crazy time in the U.S. And uh, although we do have a new president sworn in, so there you go. Yes. Um, but let's not talk politics at all this time because uh, um, how you doing, Lauren? I'm good. Yeah, things are still we're still in lockdown over here. Yeah. Um, do you think you guys will have a have a national lockdown now you have a new, more reasonable president? Yes. Um, yeah. At, at least much stricter restrictions. Because um... <clears throat> I know that he won't be able to do it straight away. He has other... Well, the, the last administration left him with a bit of a mess to clean up. Literally, as well as, 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 well as figuratively. Yeah, I thought you were going to say other fish to fry, and then I was like, ooh, I love fish. I'm a big fish fan. Do you like fish? Um, I do. I don't like battered fish, though. I like fresh fish. Yeah, I don't like battered fish either. I like fresh fish. I like salmon. Though, though I, I, salmon is my favorite. I love salmon. I like cod. I like I like a lot of white fish. Um, I like catfish. I like I like fish. Don't tell Cleo you like catfish. I even like confused. tuna fish. I like tuna. And I love anchovies. Okay, everyone gets quiet when I say I love anchovies. What is wrong with anchovies, people? I've never tasted an anchovy, so I, I wouldn't know what they oh, taste like. Oh, they're delicious. They're like salty little teeny fish. And, um, oh, they're the best. You put them on pizza. I put them on salads. I, I put them in omelets, uh, which people think I'm crazy for. But I love anchovies. It's, I guess it's like the uh, the one side of the Italian heritage that I got was uh, my love of anchovies. Extreme love of anchovies. Extreme love of anchovies. I once ate a can of anchovies for dinner. Were you dared to do that? No, I love them. But, you know, people eat cans of sardines for meals. Anchovies taste better than sardines. They do. Oh, they're wonderful. I love anchovies. Okay, now you got me hungry. I didn't start there. Oh, you, you no, nah, you didn't. But uh, I love anchovies. I love fish. Um, I, you know what I don't like though? I don't like fast food fish, like fillet fish. Um, I've never, we don't have well apart from fish and chips, and um, we we don't have. You know, um, at McDonald's they don't have fillet fish there. They do, yeah, but I've never had it. Yeah, I don't like the concept of a fish burger. It's like fish tacos. It's just no. No, do you, you want to know something funny? Our dear friend Kurt uh, from the Strange Sessions is addicted to flail fish. But isn't he a vegan? No, I don't think so. Never asked him. But he uh, he he loves flail fish. I, I don't I don't get it. I like real fish. You know what Sarah once told me? What? She said, I don't think I'd mind fish so much if it didn't taste so fishy. 
And she wasn't trying Aww. to be funny. <laughs> That's cute. No, it's not. It is. It makes no fucking sense. <laughs> it does make sense. You know, that... Like, <sighs> All right. Maybe if the taste was more subtle... Then yeah, she would like it better. I, maybe that's what she meant. Or sometimes people just say things that uh, you kind of look at them like, and like, did I ever tell you the story about the time I met Barry Manilow? No. <laughs> All right. So me and uh, my brother and my mother were in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for a baseball game. We went to see the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates play the St. Louis Cardinals. And, we were staying in the hotel that my brother's got this really cool book. And baseball fans, you should get this book if you can. Uh, it's like Major League Baseball's Guide to Every City. So, basically, it tells you, you know, every city there's a Major League team. There's a, you know, chapter of the book. And it'll tell you, like, the best things to do if you're visiting that area to go to a game, like... You know, what are the best restaurants in the area? What are the best hotels to stay at in the area? Um, what the neighborhoods are like. And uh, one of the things it says is what hotels have contracts with the teams. So where the teams stay when they're visiting. So we found out where the St. Louis Cardinals were staying. And we stayed in that hotel. Because, you know, we're autograph collectors. We were hoping to get a couple autographs. But. It just so happened Barry Manilow was in town that night and staying in that same hotel. So, um, this is back when I was a smoker. I'm outside having a cigarette. And uh, all these people just, you know, are standing outside. I didn't know Barry Manilow was even there. And also Barry Manilow comes walking through the lobby and comes walking out and stands next to me and, and my brother's there. And he looked at us. I guess he thought we were his drivers. And he just said, Where's the car? And I'm like, I, I don't know, man. I'm not your driver. But then when he left, Kevin looked at me and goes, oh, my God, he sounded just like Barry Manilow. <laughs> and because it was Barry Manilow, and he knew it was Barry Manilow, but he was shocked hearing him talk in person, realizing that he sounded like himself. To me, that's Sarah saying, I'd like fish if it didn't taste so fishy. <clears throat> that was just a rant, wasn't it? Yeah. I love Barry Manilow, too. Do you like Barry Manilow? Yeah, I like some of his songs. Did you get his autograph, though? Uh, we do have Barry Manilow's autograph, yes. Yes, he did uh, sign an autograph for Kevin at that point. But uh, I love Barry Manilow. And I never was a Barry Manilow fan growing up because, you know, Barry Manilow's, you know, it's, it's chick music, right? Mm-hmm. Well... My mother, always a huge Barry Manilow fan, like, you know, every woman. And uh, he was coming to town one year, and it was right around her birthday. So me and Kevin bought really good tickets, and we had, like, you know, fourth-row tickets to see Barry Manilow. We took our mother for her birthday to go see Barry Manilow, figuring, you know, we'll take her to dinner, we'll take her to this concert, we'll sit there and roll our eyes the whole time at a Barry Manilow concert, but it's for mom, right? That motherfucker hits the stage, puts on one of the best shows I ever saw in my life. And from that day forward, I have been a fanalo. <laughs> and I'm a proud fanalo. Oh, I judge you so. <laughs> Manalo fucking rules, baby. He's awesome. Barry Manilow. 
I'm going to try to get him on the show. I don't think he'll come on, but... I don't think he'll come on either. No, but how cool would that be? And I'd say, dude, you sound just like yourself. Barry, do you like anchovies? (laughs) Barry, is Pluto a planet? Of course he'd say it is. Oh. Enough Ash of this. didn't. <laughs> Enough of this Manilow and fish talk. Yeah. What's going on in the world of Lauren? Not much, really. There's not much to say. Um, heading back to university in the next couple of days, but that's about it. Are you looking forward to going back to university? Well, it's not back. I can't go back at all. I'm a bit nervous about how to do things because only so much of the books and the the articles are online. There are some things that you do need to request from the library and we're not allowed to travel into campus. So it, it, that it, that is a concern. It's interesting yeah. that you say that because, you know, tonight's guest is, is a professor, university professor, and... Uh, their campus is closed, but his lab is on that campus, you know, and he still does lab work. Oh, no, you can go in and do lab work because, there are, for for example, if you're a third year um, or in some term or in, or in some courses, fourth year undergrad student or a postgraduate student and you have lab work, then that is that that's important that you go because you have um you know, that, that lab time is counted towards um, part of your mark. That's, yeah. that's really weird to have a course where your attendance is is part of your being able to pass. Yeah. I mean, Professor Bisson, who's coming out with us tonight, is, uh, you know, his research lab, you know, a lot of the stuff he does for his research lab pretty much helps fund the university, I'm sure. Um, because they get all kinds of grants from, you know, you know, big name things, National Geographic, stuff like that. But, uh, yeah. But so. it, it is a concern because. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, if I, um, with, with, with a master's, um, it's not like an undergrad dissertation where, where a lot of your work, you can look at the critical sources. You have to go out there and you've got to make your own critical argument and you've got to engage with the sources yourself which if the archives remain closed or restricted or or appointment based then that's going to be very difficult because at the moment as long as you've got um uh, for example the national archives as long as you've got a reader's card you can pop in whenever you want well i'm going to make a critical argument right now uh, about anchovies oh god and yeah uh, you know they're one of the healthiest foods for you too. They're a little they're a little high in sodium, but uh, because anchovies are like bottom feeders, they're like re- really low. You know they don't eat the other fish, so they don't get like the mercury and the bad shit in them that fish have. So eat your anchovies, people. They're good for you. What about plastics? Would they would they would they? Ain't no plastics plastic? at the bottom. No plastics float. <laughs> Come on, they found microplastics in. Um... In placentas, so you know you don't know that. In placentas. Yeah. Microplastics. Microplastics in placentas. Okay. Um, movie name. I don't even want to think about that. Sarah's commenting on that now. She thinks it's a great name for a movie. 
It is. And Cleo is now rubbing her face against the computer. She owns it. It's hers. Yeah, it is hers. Um, I, I mean, if if you if you put um, your your wallet down in front of her, she that would be hers too. Everything is hers. You don't understand this. Yeah, I, I do understand this. I had a cat. But I do keep hers. my anchovies away from her because she'd eat those. Yeah. They, they're her anchovies. No, they're my anchovies. She knows no, that. No, they're, they're her anchovies. You're depriving her of that, and she will no, remember no, no, that. No, she knows the there's, a, there's a line that you do not cross, and that's the anchovy line. Not the chicken nugget line where she steals the chicken nuggets. Oh, no, she steals the chicken nuggets. And then comes back and goes, I, I require you to cut this for me. Yes, please make this smaller pieces so I can eat it. It is mine. I have stolen it, and it is now mine. But... Please fix nugget so I can eat it. Yeah, fix the chicken nugget. Hey, Lauren. Yeah? Did you know, totally off topic, that uh, Hitler had quite a flatulent problem? Yeah, I I saw that on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. You've been very good at um, at telling the, the Facebook world about it. Yeah, do you know what he did to uh, to try to stop that? Wasn't it something to do with Armenian peasants? Yeah, he ate. Uh, he 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 took medicine made from their poop. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, how could you? How could his doctor have even got that past him? I, I well, he knew it was in it, but I want to know would would it work with any poop, or does it have to be Armenian peasants? Bulgarian. Oh, Bulgarian. Sarah says, I'm sorry. Armenian peasants are just weird, I guess. But, you know, Bulgarian peasants. That's a step too far. Yeah, that's just too much. Yeah. You had me at poop. Armenian, you lost me. But why Bulgarian? I don't know. I, I don't know. All I know is that I'm not eating Bulgarian poop. Unless they I eat would... a lot of anchovies. <laughs> I, I would hope that you wouldn't eat excrement at all well no because first off i don't believe flatulence are a problem in fact i love them um quite proud of them okay oh come on like you don't everybody does no i mean you're not proud of them um i've never really thought of them in uh, that intently i know theo is very proud of his there you go smart boy smart boy well, we, we, we should actually probably move on to, uh, oh, you know what? <clears throat> Ready? Yeah. Today in history. History, history, history. How'd you like that one, huh? That was good. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go first, yeah. okay? Okay. So, today in history, <clears throat> January 25th, 1858, the wedding march. By Felix Mendelssohn, you know, the song that plays at, like, all the weddings? Yes. Was played for the very first time at a wedding. Do you know whose wedding it was? I do know whose wedding it was. Yeah, it's your princess. Yeah. It was Princess Victoria's wedding. That was the first time they ever played the wedding march. Um, Felix Mendelssohn. And, uh, yeah, how'd that wedding turn out? Um, it was fine. Yeah. Yeah. 
So she's a trendsetter. Yeah. I mean, uh, apart from Bertie's marriage, none of them really... Oh, well, and Louise. None of them really had, like, really weird, scandalous marriages. What about when Prince Charles married Wayne Gretzky? But that that that's not Queen Victoria. That's, that's yeah, that's true. That's, uh, yeah. Same family. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. I won't bash the crown. Your turn. Go ahead. Give me a day in history. Okay, on the twenty fifth of January, eighteen ninety, journalist Nellie Bly beats the fictitious journey of Jules Verne's Phileas Fogg around the world by eight days, which oh, was seventy two days. Nellie Bly. Yeah, I thought I'd have to get a bit of Nellie in there. Get Nellie in there, and folks, go back into our archives and listen to the great Nellie Bly episode with Brooke Kroger. Professor Brooke Kroger came on, yeah. and we talked Nellie Bly. And you know what? While you're in our archives, drop us an email. Drop us a line. Um, you can email us at trans.history.rambling at gmail.com. Or you can go on our Twitter, fe- our Twitter feed, which <laughs> President Trump can't, but... Twitter at TA History or History TA. Drop us a message there, or how else can they reach us, Lauren? Um, you can reach us on Facebook at uh, which is History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. Um, you on Instagram, which is at History Ramblings, and now on TikTok, which is also at History Ramblings. Yeah, does that mean I'm gonna have to start like dancing and like doing shit like that for TikTok? No. We could make it happen anyway. Yeah, we might have to make it happen anyway. How about if Cleo dances? Yeah, we can have Cleo content. Yeah, we'll do Cleo content on um, on Twitter. Uh, not Twitter, on Twitch. TikTok. Not Twitch. TikTok. We can also have a Twitch if you want one. Isn't that a video game thing? Yeah. Um, Ansel does live streaming on there. I think he does D&D live streaming, so we could probably... Oh, we could probably do a... You know, we'll do a live stream video sometime on Twitch. How about that? But for tonight, ooh, we got to go to our, uh, um, let me fire it up. You ready? The interview box. It's the magic interview box. Let's flip the switch and come right back with Professor Bisson. Right, Lauren, the magic interview box worked once again. And this time, it's a time machine, too, because we're going way back in time. Because I got, like, this might be one of the coolest guests we've ever had. We've had a lot of cool guests, as you know. Yeah. But Professor Michael Bisson, who is not only Canadian, which makes him cool enough, but he is the world's leading expert on you ready for this Lauren yes. Neanderthal man well That's sort of man amazing. Neanderthal you know the ones you keep saying I'm related to the listeners keep saying you're related to that, well that's true but you know I think we all are and I think we should find out so uh professor welcome to transatlantic history ramblings thank you I'm glad to be here first things first am I related to, to Neanderthal Well, uh, since you're apparently of European background, between 1% and 3% of your DNA is definitely Neanderthal DNA. Wait a second. So that means Lauren's Neanderthal, too. 
Of course. Ha <laughs> ha, listeners. Born <laughs> Neanderthal too. Well, well, I've got red hair. I kind of guessed I was. Oh, that's a that's a specific Neanderthal gene. Yeah, that's where the we're the ginger twins. <laughs> now, you are joining us all the way from Quebec, and you're not speaking French. I'm a little disappointed. Well, the answer is I'm actually not Canadian. I was born in Vermont, which is almost as good as being Canadian, That's Canadian. in terms of, of liberality, uh, but grew up in Southern California. Uh, my family migrated out there more or less like Dust Bowl refugees in the 1950s. And uh, so I grew up in SoCal and went to University of California, Santa Barbara. And what brought you to Quebec? Well, a job at McGill University. I couldn't pass that up. I came here in 1974 and have been here ever since. And you still don't speak French? I speak French extremely poorly. My second language was Spanish. Clearly, the uh, uh, left side of my brain, the language side, is badly atrophied. <laughs> I could blame it on my Neanderthal heritage as well, except there's pretty good evidence that they had the full capability of speech that modern humans have. Wait a second. So I can't get away with that. I'll have to blame it on an earlier hominin. Okay, wait a second. Hold the phone for a moment. You're telling me Neanderthal could talk? Oh, absolutely. Wow. Okay, like, what do you think the typical Neanderthal conversation was? Well, there's been a lot of debate about that. First, in, the, in terms of the question of whether or not they could talk, for a long time, uh, well, ideas about Neanderthals have gone through a series of cycles. In the 19th century, after they were first discovered, people considered them to, to be extremely animalistic and stupid and violent and so forth. And that's where the negative stereotype of Neanderthals originated in the 19th century. Um, in the early 20th century, uh, particularly as anthropology became more relativistic and less racist, and early anthropology was extremely racist, um, as anthropologists trended away from that, Neanderthals got rehabilitated as a, as a sort of byproduct, and people assumed they were intelligent up through about the 1950s, and then the negative stereotype took over, uh, in part led by American anthropologists, people like Lewis Binford, who claimed they were really very dumb. And the bottom line is, we actually have some physical evidence for Neanderthal language. First, it was once assumed that their larynx in their throat, the voice box, was not the same as modern humans, and thus they couldn't make the full range of sounds. Uh, we since found a hyoid bone, which is the bone at the top of the larynx at, uh, in a um, site in Israel that's identical to modern humans. So their voice box was the same as modern humans. Studies of the imprint of the brain on the inside of the skull showed that the language areas of the brain appeared to be as large in Neanderthals as in modern humans. And finally, the, 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 uh, the clincher was when we finally sequenced the Neanderthal genome and found what's called the FOXP2 gene, which is, definitely, uh, is directly correlated with linguistic ability in modern humans. So they could talk. There's no, no question they could talk. There's, there's some question about how well they could talk in the sense of what their conversations were like. Some people argue that they were, um, uh, had, had less developed social skills so that 
Neanderthal humor, for example, may have been more like Three Stooges humor as opposed to um, uh, New Yorker cartoon, highly nuanced humor. Um, we simply can't tell. I love Three Stooges humor, first off. <laughs> so, okay, what... what I, I, I'm, I'm already, like, mind-blown here. Like, for the sake of the audience... See, proving that I'm smart. Um, approximately when in prehistoric times were Neanderthal? Uh, Neanderthals, in their fully recognized skeletal form, evolved out of an earlier form called Homo heidelbergensis in Europe. They're a specific European adaptation beginning around five or six hundred thousand years ago. The full Neanderthal. Um, a form was achieved by about 300,000 years ago, and the last Neanderthals appear to go extinct uh, in Spain or some other areas of mountain, mountainous areas in Europe, somewhere in perhaps as recently as 30,000, but maybe closer to about 35,000 years ago. So, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm really not that shocked that they spoke because, you know, I've watched a lot of Flintstones. <laughs> and I know they could talk. Even their little baby elephants talked. Yeah, exactly. Now, Neanderthal is, I, would you say this is like the really big step into the evolution of modern human? Uh, well, actually, they're a side branch. They're pretty clear that uh, the primary uh, <clears throat> progression through the uh, early human line occurred in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, Neanderthals were descendants of a group of early humans that migrated out of Africa around somewhere between 1 million and, and 800,000 years ago, migrated up into Western Europe. Uh, and uh, they evolved separately up there for a significant amount of time. And then when anatomically modern humans started to come out of Africa and move into Eurasia around 120 or 130,000 years ago, um, then there was some interbreeding between Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans. They were close enough biologically so that they could interbreed and produce fertile offspring. And that's where the small percentage of uh, Neanderthal genes existing in, in, in contemporary humans uh, came from. So Neanderthals are an interesting side branch, but they're not the main show in terms of the origins of complex thought, for example, as far as, far as we can tell. All of that was occurring in um, uh, right down Eastern, Central, and Southern Africa, and that's actually where I'm working now I'm working in Zambia in Central Africa on a site that marks uh, possibly the, uh, the transition to more complex technologies at around 300,000 years ago. Well, Neanderthal used tools that would almost be called modern tools. Well, their, their tools were simple stone tools, but they were... Uh, often actually fairly difficult to make. What's interesting uh, to me is that certain stoneworking techniques where they would chip, take chips off a core of something like some sort of stone like flint and would prepare that core 
so that you struck one final chip off it, and that final chip was a complete ready-to-use stone tool. Uh, this technique is extremely hard to execute. All the preparation flakes that you take off the core have to be taken off at exactly the right angles, have exactly the right shape. When you strike off the final tool, and I've done this because I've, I've played around with flint napping for about 50 years now, uh, you have a margin of error of only about one millimeter in terms of where you strike the stone and a margin of error in terms of the angle with which you strike the stone of less than five degrees. And the bottom line is it takes tremendous hand-eye coordination and a really good innate geometric sense to pull this trick off. And that was actually more complex than the tools that the invading anatomically modern humans were making when they came in uh, to Europe. So Neanderthals had cognitive abilities that were probably equal to those of modern humans, but they had other disadvantages that presumably we'll get into later. And Neanderthals um, definitely were not as complex culturally as the invading anatomically modern humans or the expanding anatomically modern humans. Hey, Lauren, what do, you, what do you think about this? That, you know, your ancestors, my ancestors... We're like these great tool makers that aren't even human. It's, um, uh, it's well, it, 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 it leaves you speechless, really, doesn't it? Because it's kind of, it's awesome, not in the way that we use awesome today, but it's just, it makes you realize that there's so much more to life and this planet than our time on it and it's just amazing yeah and, and that they were around up until like you said thirty thousand years ago around thirty thousand yes so they were living with humans uh yes breeding uh, the with humans overlap, yeah the 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 time overlap well, we really don't know exactly how long the time overlap was in any particular area but in terms of western europe the overlapping period of the expansion of anatomically modern humans at the ultimate expense of Neanderthals was a period of over 15,000 years. I mean, that, 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 it's it's, it's mind-blowing. I want to know if the human chicks were interested in the Neanderthal man or the Neanderthal chicks were interested in the human men. That's what I want to know, how this interbreeding went. That we will never know. Oh, I there think are we lots know. Lots and lots of things. There are lots and lots of things that that uh, archaeologists can discover, and many things, even more things that they can't discover. Um, and wh whether I suspect the uh, the attraction went both ways, whenever uh, uh, different colonial groups or expanding populations in recent history went into other areas, virtually inevitably. Interbreeding went on. Um, whether there were big cultural, technological, uh, linguistic differences, it didn't stop them. People tend to interbreed. And I'm, I'm just shocked that humans and Neanderthal were able to breed. Um, because, you know, primates usually cannot interbreed. 
And we, I mean, let's face it, we are essentially primates. I know a lot of the religious community hates it when we say that, but sorry, <laughs> folks, we're primates. And Neanderthal are primates, but, you know, other primates alive today can't interbreed. Well, actually, some can. It some, depends. But... It's, it, simply, it simply depends on how close the evolutionary relationship is. Uh, after all, lions and tigers, who are only moderately related, can interbreed, but they don't produce fertile offspring. They do produce live offspring now. Um, some varieties of monkeys in Central Africa, the Gwinnans uh, and various other uh, uh, forms of, of highly arboreal monkeys will interbreed uh, and produce fertile offspring that tend to not succeed in breeding themselves because their color patterns, the color patterns of their fur are not right. That is, they're not appealing to other members of either species. Because they're 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 the they're the wrong pattern, and so the second generation uh, hybrids almost never occur. Yeah, ever since uh, but, I started going salt and pepper, I've had the same problem. <laughs> uh, yes, age is not kind. No, as, as I know all too well. Speaking of age, before we go any further. We would sing, except that they would fine us heavily for copyright infringement. But, Lauren, today is Professor Benson's birthday. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. He's 29 today. 29? 29. <laughs> 29. Uh, no, it's it's in the 70s, 74. Happy birthday. <laughs> Now, enough of that kissing your butt. All right, we got to get down to the nitty-gritty here. How vastly different were, for instance, Cro-Magnon Man? Uh, Yeah, Cro-Magnon is, is, uh, quote, anatomically modern human. The particular fossil you're referring to from uh, Cro-Magnon Rock Shelter, now a very picturesque hole, hotel in the town of Lazy Z's in southwest France, uh, that uh, individual was probably in the low 32,000s, so um, he, it was, a, it was a very large man, um, would have um, potentially actually been overlapping with the Neanderthals at the time. Um, they, uh, interesting thing is that at that time, Neanderthals actually had average brain sizes that were a bit bigger than the average for the many skulls of anatomically modern humans we have at the time, and also bigger than the the average brain size of, of uh, you and I, of, of uh, humans living today, uh, by about 5%. Uh, although you have to uh, uh, look at brain size in terms of brain size relative to body mass. Yeah, size don't matter. So, Neanderthals, Neanderthals were big, massive, uh, well, they weren't big, they weren't tall, but they were massive, strong individuals. Uh, the anatomically modern humans that were entering Europe were much taller for the simple reason that having come out of Africa, they had that tropical morphology where long limbs and a long body, long, narrow body helps dissipate heat. 
If you look at East Africans and Ethiopians, for example, they tend to be tall and tend to be thin. And those are the geographical areas of Africa that were the source of these populations that moved ultimately into Europe. Um, Neanderthals, on the other hand, had evolved during a period when literally well over 90% of the roughly uh, 270,000-year career of Neanderthals in Europe, roughly 90% was significantly, the climate, the Earth's climate was significantly colder than today. Uh, they were living in tropical, uh, not tropical, in um, boreal forest conditions uh, for much of that time. Uh, long, cold winters, um, they had to adapt to that. So they have bodies that are similar to many Arctic peoples today, that is, uh, short, stocky stature to minimize uh, surface skin exposure. Basically, the shorter and rounder you are, uh, the less heat you're going to lose. They had shorter forearms than modern humans and shorter lower legs. Their fingers were shorter. Uh, and all of these uh, were adaptations to, uh, uh, to cold weather. One thing I want to stress, however, is remember they evolved in Europe in cold periods when the angle of the Earth is such in the northern hemisphere that you're not getting as direct sunlight. The end result is there's strong natural selection for light skin. And almost all popular cultural depictions of Neanderthals until just very recently have depicted Neanderthals as darker skinned than anatomically modern humans. And it's precisely the reverse. Anatomically modern humans recently out of Africa probably had at their lightest a dark sort of Mediterranean basin, Middle Eastern complexion, probably darker than that. And Neanderthals uh, were white as sheets, basically. Um, and so uh, that, that's, that's all part of the, in part, sort of racist depictions of Neanderthals that have persisted for a long time and actually go back to the 19th century. There were some obvious differences in, in appearance. Neanderthals had much bigger eyebrow ridges. Their skull was more elongated and, and wider uh, at the sides, so it sort of bulged out at the sides and bulged out at the back. Um, so they would have looked a bit funny, but not that much. Uh, you, As one anthropologist showed in the 1930s with a drawing, you could put a... Uh, a business suit and a hat on a Neanderthal, and as the guy said, the the guy could get on a New York subway and not stand out as as being unusual. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple artist renditions of Neanderthal where I was like, they they kind of look like someone with a combination of hydrocephaly and and agromegaly. You know, their heads look like almost ballooned, but yet they have that big, strong brow and jaw. Yeah, that's, exa that's exactly the uh, uh, situation. And the other thing, the one thing the artist renditions almost never get is the nose. I've, I've got a, a big, I've, I've been involved over the years in a number of cases uh, advising uh, documentary producers on Neanderthals and on um, the prosthetics whenever they're having actors depict Neanderthals on the prosthetics the makeup people use. And I always have to to correct the noses, and they still usually don't get it right. 
If you look at all Neanderthal skulls, the nasal bones, which are those two bones at the bridge of your nose, which angle downward in uh, modern humans, those bones stuck straight out forward in Neanderthals and the, the nasal aperture, the hole for the, the nostrils was significantly wider. And if there's any sort of cartilage, and there must have been a nasal cartilage attached to those bones, that meant they had big hook noses. I was going to say, but straight out, it was almost like a giant gorilla nose. Well, no, that's different because that's the whole portion of the face that is expanded forward because of the size of the teeth in gorillas. So you're saying they're like Cyrano. There's there's all sorts of... of, um, uh, necessary biomechanical relationships in terms of facial architecture. The bigger uh, your teeth are, the bigger the support bones of the uh, lower part of the face have to be. Um, and uh, that's the situation there. The other thing about this nose is the nose was actually, uh, it wasn't trivial. It was an important part of their adaptation in that in cold climates, uh one thing that we know about Neanderthals is they had tremendous musculature and they didn't have very advanced weapons in the sense of, of um, uh, the bow and arrow. They, when they killed animals, they tended to do it up close and personal with stabbing spears or spears that could be thrown but not thrown for great distances. They certainly had the strength to, to throw for reasonable distances, but probably heavy weaponry and the use of clubs. Uh, We know this because um, an anthropologist a number of years ago looked at all extant Neanderthal skeletons looking for injury patterns on the the bones. And um, he came up with a really interesting, uh, in the first place, Neanderthal bones showed an extremely large number of healed traumatic injuries. And healed is important because that means they took care of their wounded. But the other thing that's important, other than the stress fractures in the feet, suggesting they were doing a lot of running around on rough ground barefoot, was there were arm and leg and rib fractures. And so the guy, once he mapped all of these out, looked at modern occupational categories to see if he could find a match. And he found a match. And guess what it is? I'll give you a hint. What's, what's the match for Neanderthal injury patterns? Football player. Actually, no, but you're close. Something that involves significant violence. Wouldn't be a boxer, would it? No, <laughs> those are head Significant violent. Um... Police officer. Sorry, I couldn't understand you. Oh, sorry, I said police officer. Police officer, sorry. Uh, no, I mean, they, they were in body armor, at least in the States now. They're... they're more armored than somebody in Game of Thrones. Yeah, what are you uh, doing to uh, the police over there in Wales, Lauren? <laughs> they just come out in high vis vests when I've uh, had to, when I've seen them. We don't have as many riots here. <laughs> well, that's true. I don't know. What would it be? It's, believe it or not, rodeo cowboys and specifically the bucking horse and bull riders. Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. And what are those guys doing? They're dealing with herbivores that are really mad at them and trying to kick and stomp them. 
in various ways. And they got, he got a perfect match with mostly with bull riders. Um, and so it's, it's pretty clear that these people lived a, a really rough life that required a lot of muscular activity. And indeed, if you don't have particularly efficient clothing, uh, muscular activity can keep you warm. Remember, it's cold. The, the weather is cold most of the time. And to, to fuel that, you need first a big nasal aperture and a really big heart and lungs. And the chests of Neanderthals are significantly larger than the chests of anatomically modern humans. So they've got a big oxygen processing factory in their upper chest. But the problem with cold weather is that the air is extremely dry. And this has actually been proven. If you hyperventilate really cold air into your lungs, you can damage your lungs. What your nose does is inside your nose, there are lots of, there are little curved bones called turbinates that have mucous membranes on them. And they warm and humidify the air that's going into the lungs. That's why when you're out in the cold, your nose runs a bit. Uh, in Neanderthals, those turbinate bones are much bigger than nasal passage is much bigger. The nasal passage is designed with, to, to essentially be more wavy and provide even more humidification uh, for air going into their lungs. So this was a great advantage to Neanderthals in their particular environment. But to us, it would have frankly looked pretty gross because the average Neanderthal probably had a very big runny nose most of the time. I know that feeling. <laughs> I, uh, what about what about body hair? This we have no idea. Um, I, I really couldn't. It, it's in, in, entirely speculative. Um, probably mo a bit more body hair, but they certainly didn't have a fur coat, so to speak. I think think that's unlikely because the hair patterns for all humans around the world are effectively the same. Um, Basically, in joint areas between the legs underneath the arms, hair acts as a dry lubricant. Hair on the head keeps the brain warm or cool. That is, in really hot weather, it uh, shields the brain in really cold weather. It insulates and helps prevent traumatic injury to the brain. Uh, and the same thing to a degree with the face, but the face may in part be some form of sexual selection uh, that uh, selected for uh, facial hair patterns. Um, there may have been some body hair, but I think uh, it's cultural adaptation, some forms of clothing that are likely uh, what was uh, keeping people alive in cold uh, climates. Because I, um, I watched a special one time about uh, the migration of, you know, uh, during the evolution and how they were able to track them by by crabs, by pubic lice. Oh, uh, yes. I see. I, I haven't read extensively. I've, I've seen the paper that described, described that. But, uh, yeah, pubic lice uh, appear to have originated, I think, in the gorilla line, if I remember correctly. But one way or another, they jumped to humans, and we will not ask how uh I'm and uh, various, various forms of of uh uh lice have been good predictors of uh geographical relationships around the world 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, because the thing I was watching was like you know it was like the head lice and body lice were one separate thing, and then and then when they got to the pubic lice, you could see the migration because you know some of the lice stopped at this point, but yet crabs continue just like today. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, because you get this image almost of you know this half ape, half man. Um, Neanderthal, which, you know, as you said, is completely wrong and, and quite racist. But it's just the image we all have in our head. At least I do. Lauren, I could be wrong. Is that the image you had in your head? Um, not really, no. I. You see so many documentaries, but they look different. You kind of stop having an idea of what they look like. It, it's interesting, Lauren that you answered in that way and that way different from Brian because there has been over the last 25 or 30 years a very distinct difference between North American archaeologists and European archaeologists' views of Neanderthals. And this goes back actually a while with the European archaeologists tending to humanize Neanderthals more and North American archaeologists tending to dehumanize Neanderthals more. And that may say something about uh, culture in North America. The, the dehumanization of Neanderthals began with their discovery in the 1850s. And at the time, physical anthropology was worse than in its infancy. It was still gestating. Uh, and um, the... People were doing things like, you've heard of phrenology, the idea that you could predict somebody's personality from the bumps on their skull, or, or physiognomy, where different aspects of the body uh, would reflect your character. Well, that was actually very big in the 19th century. So one of the first actual sculptural depictions of a Neanderthal was done in the early 1880s uh, for... A really interesting museum. This museum has a great name. It's in Turin, Italy, and it's still there. And it's called the Museum of Criminal Anthropology. Yes, indeed. Criminal Anthropology. And and what's going what was going on there is they were they were basically a bunch of phrenologists. And they saw the various bumps and the big brow ridges on Neanderthal and assumed that Neanderthal was the prototypical criminal psychopath. And so the, it, literally in the lobby of this museum was this bust of a, of a Neanderthal looking the most, like the most deranged and crazed killer you ever saw in your life. It's a marvelous thing. The statue is still there. Uh, there was an exhibition of Neanderthal skeletons in Ottawa, Canada last year, and I was involved part in the in the preparation of that. And we desperately tried to get them to loan us that bus, but they wouldn't do they wouldn't do it. Much to my disgust. Um, but it started off with them being very very animalistic, and then they, as I mentioned, they got rehabilitated. And there's a whole series of reasons for that that are essentially cultural reasons. Um, I think one of the things that we tend to do is project uh, our own ideas about human nature onto uh, 
what we believe to be our ancestors, whether they are our ancestors in terms of the biblical creation story or our ancestors in terms of the fossil record for human evolution. And as contemporary ideas about human nature, it's essentially the old Hobbes versus Locke, Hobbes, uh, nasty, brutish, and short lives of, of early man, uh, John Locke, who believed that people were naturally uh, cooperative and altruistic, and it's the Locke-Hobbes debate uh, all over again, and you see that. I, I think, unfortunately, North Americans uh, tend to be more Hobbesian and see humans as innately bad and have to be controlled, and Europeans, uh, it appears, are still more on the lock side. Um, but it's, it's an interesting to, uh, thing to follow, and it shows up in, in all the movies about Neanderthals, and um, even to a degree in, in some documentaries, but not nearly as much as uh, now as it used to. You know, it's funny that um, you say in our ancestors we have these depictions in our head, but it's not just our ancestors. It's pretty much anything that is mysterious and unknown to us. Um, we had a couple months, uh, about a month or so ago on, we had uh, Dr. Philip Curry, uh, the paleontologist on. And he was talking about the misconceptions of uh, the Tyrannus and how they've discovered in recent years that they were communal livers. They lived in packs. They hunted in packs. They were, fam they, they were almost family-like, which totally blows your mind when you think of this evil T-Rex, but... I'm starting to believe Neanderthal was the same way. Uh, it varied with Neanderthals, and and this is a point that I I make. I've I've had a lecture, public lecture, I've been giving uh, for a few years now called "Living with Neanderthals," and um, uh, one of the things I emphasize is that it is a mistake to characterize all Neanderthals as being one way or another. Um, just as it's a mistake to uh, characterize all people today as as one way or another. Uh, and um, I'm sure some Neanderthals were extremely bad news to deal with and extremely dangerous. And it, there may have been cultural traditions in certain areas that today we would look on um, very unfavorably. Um, uh, cannibalism, for example. Um, there is abundant evidence for cannibalism among Neanderthals, but it's regionally um, circumscribed. Uh, France, uh, Spain, uh, and um, uh, I believe, oh, Croatia is the, is the other one. Um, and in other areas, there's been no evidence of cannibalism among Neanderthals at all. Well, they were hungry. I mean, you know. Especially well, the, if they were hungry is, is the interesting part. Um, there is a cave in Spain that has just recently been published that's given us some extremely interesting insights into Neanderthal family life, among other things. But it's a very grisly discovery. Some cavers were going through a narrow passage, and they found some fragmentary human bones in some rubble that was sliding down um, from a sinkhole from above human bone yeah. uh it was well it turned out it was neanderthal bone the cave had been used by partisans in the spanish civil war so the cavers who found 
uh, this fragment of a skull, uh, took it to the police for identification. The police looked at it, recognized it as being something odd, took it to scientists. And the scientists uh, essentially went crazy because it was perfectly preserved Neanderthal bone that is not fossilized, not in any way mineralized. It was basically semi-frozen because, it, as it turns out, this cave has been one degree Celsius, one degree above Celsius for the last 49,000 years. Wow. And um, so they sent in people to excavate this, and they recognized that you could get good DNA out of this bone, so they literally, the Spanish did this right. They literally took the samples with people using moon suits, pretty much, <laughs> uh, to uh, make sure there was no modern contamination of the bone. And I'll talk about the genetic results of that later, but the bottom line was they found small fragments of 13 individuals, but over 2,000 fragments. Um, there were a couple of intact hands and feet, but every other bone was split with cut marks on it, percussion marks on it. Everything was smashed up uh, in patterns that suggest that the individuals were eaten. Uh, there's no evidence of cooking. They aren't burned. There's no evidence of carnivore damage. So this wasn't a carnivore layer where something got chomped up. And um, they eventually, there, there's still a debate over what exactly happened. It happens that 49,000 years ago was an extremely cold snap in that part of Europe. And it's possible that these people were starving. And had to resort to starvation cannibalism, like the, the famous uh, uh, airplane flight that crashed in the Andes. Or the, the Donner Party. Some of the, yeah, or the Donner Party, where people started eating each other. Uh, that's one possibility. Other people argue that it was a cannibal group of Neanderthals that got them. Um, there is some evidence for, or some support for the starvation thing, because uh, just, just this last year, they published... Uh, a um, study of the tartar, the, what's called calculus, on the teeth. And that tartar is really useful because it contains fragments and DNA of the food you eat. And they only discovered this recently, that tartar from Neanderthal teeth can tell us directly about their diets. And most Neanderthals are eating a 90-plus percent meat diet. This has been found and also stable carbon isotope analyses of their, of their bones show 90% meat diet. And then you get the LC, LC drones, the name of this cave, the LC drone Neanderthals, they're eating moss and uh, um, uh, the roots of water lilies and other things that are really seriously not nutritious. So they, it looks like they've got a serious hunger problem that they're dealing with. Freaking the vegans. DNA, yeah, the DNA from that site was fantastic. Um, they've been able, from piecing the bones together, to reconstruct uh, a total of seven adults, um, three uh, juveniles, uh, and uh, sorry, three juveniles, two uh, young, or three adolescents, two juveniles, and one baby. All right, I got a weird question, and I'm not trying to be funny. Lauren always thinks I'm trying to be funny. You said the only things that were really intact were hands and feet. Do you think... 
Because if they were going, if they were marrow suckers, you know, trying to get the marrow out of the bones, there's a lot of there's a lot of bones in the hands and feet. Do you think it might have been ritualistic of something to keep the hands and feet? No, not at all. The hands and feet, actually, the the bone marrow cavities in uh, carpals, uh, tarsals, metacarpals, tarsals, and, and phalanges have almost no marrow. In fact, the the only really inedible parts of a human body are the hands and feet. Um, and indeed, some of those, even some of those were broken up, but there was one, at least one complete hand and one complete foot. Um, and the DNA, the DNA just gave us some amazing evidence. First, uh, it they, they were able to identify the Y chromosome and thus identify specifically which individuals were males and females. Now, it was always assumed that males would be bigger than females, but the pelvis of Neanderthals is sufficiently different that you can't use the morphology of the pelvis necessarily to sex the skeleton as a modern forensic anthropologist could use for a, a skeletal, skeletalized murder victim. Um, so they found out that indeed the four big ones were males, and the three smaller adults were females. The body size difference was about 15%, which is almost exactly the same body size difference in modern humans between males and females. But what was really fascinating, oh yeah, the other thing is they connected one of the females directly to one of the juveniles and the baby. Really? And the birth interval was three years, uh, which is again common ethnographically. And so that's not a surprise. But they did get, first, that only 15% difference between males and females does suggest some sort of pair-bonded system. Whether you want to call it marriage is another matter, but uh, adults formed pair bonds and raised children that way. So the, the, it's plausible evidence for the family. But there's also plausible evidence for how they got their mates. The mitochondrial DNA of all the males was absolutely identical, meaning they came from one family in one place. The mitochondrial DNA of all the adult females was slightly different from the males, and also each female was slightly different from the other females, so that those three females came from three different groups, three groups that were different from the the tribe, whatever the group uh, uh, of the males. And this is was known as patrilocality. It's the earliest known evidence of patrilocality. And, and it's sort of a neat little insight into, into their lives. Into their sex lives, yeah. <laughs> Lauren, you got to jump in there. Uh, I mean, uh, my jaw is open on this. <laughs> Mine too. I I don't know what to say really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very fascinating. They they're so human-like. Now you know. Here's an odd question. Let's say, for argument's sake, they were eating humans. Would that be considered cannibalism? Because we are so close. If we were close enough to mate. Would that kind oh, of be considered the same thing? Modern humans. Um, we haven't found any evidence of it yet. Um, you never know what's going to pop up. 
I mean, for example, um, there was Elsie Drone looks probably like a case of survival cannibalism. There's pretty good evidence those people were starving. There's also, by the way, the the latest paper that just came out on Elsie Drone is a little disquieting. Um, now that they've sort of pieced the skeletons together, they've started to look at um, diseases on those skeletons. And those that group of 13 individuals was absolutely riddled with genetically related anomalies, severe problems with the spine in, an, in a number of individuals with, with vertebra. One guy had a... Uh, baby premolar tooth stay in place. It didn't drop out when the adult one came in. Uh, it blocked the adult one coming in, which caused a big cyst to form that essentially made it impossible for the individual to chew on one side of his mouth. And uh, clearly the person had to be nursed significantly and also was undoubtedly hurt like crazy. Um, but uh, the authors uh, look at this genetic ev- this evidence, which is showing uh, rates of, of um, genetic anomalies astronomically higher than in evidence for it in skeletons from anatomically modern humans in the past, as well as modern people today, and uh, have argued that one of the possible causes of Neanderthal extinction was uh, uh, excessive inbreeding. That's, I was going to uh, say, it sounds like massive inbreeding. And that that is potentially possible because, remember I talked about the climate being lousy for most of the time. Well, one of the byproducts of that is that resources are widely distributed and over, global overall biomass is low. This means that group sizes need to be smaller. Uh, for Neanderthals are pretty much at the top of the food chain. They're, they're apex predators or would be close to it. Some of the, the saber-toothed cats and things might have been competition. Some people argue that hyenas and cats were, um, uh, were able to suppress Neanderthals to a degree. But one way or another, they're among the top predators. And in a biomass poor environment, uh, top predators have to be groups have to be widely spaced. And if they're widely spaced, then there's a greater chance that uh, first there's a smaller total number of groups, the population overall is smaller, and the chance of you marrying a cousin or a sister or something like that, a, a close relative is substantially higher. And so it's, it's just a statistical uh, game, You're, you've got a greater chance of, of inbreeding effects. Now, inbreeding does occur in some other small uh, populations of large mammals and uh, does not appear to have generated significant problems. But in humans, we know that inbreeding does. Uh, and it appears that was the case of the LC drone specimens. But they were survival cannibalism. Uh, possibly one of the more sinister examples of cannibalism is the the uh, the first well-documented example from a place called Krapina in Croatia. Excavated in the 1920s and 30s, people suggested cannibalism, but again, the guy who did the study of, of Neanderthal injury patterns went and did a restudy of that stuff about 
20 years ago. And those individuals were just systematically butchered. There were cut marks on everything, and they were cooked. There's uh, heat damage to a number of the bones, uh, and uh, that was an area where the climate was probably not nearly as bad, and that was, appears to be deliberate cannibalism by one group of Neanderthals uh, on another. Um, so, you know, different cultures in different areas. And as I say, other parts of, uh, of France uh, uh, show no evidence of Neanderthal cannibalism at all. Oh, no, the French would be far too uh, hoity-toity to be cannibals. <laughs> they would just so turn their nose up at that. But, you know, it, it's funny, you're speaking of France and Spain, and obviously we've talked, you know, uh, the UK and, you know, the you know Western Europe. Do we know if Neanderthal migrated over to North America? No, they definitely did not. Uh, there's nothing that skeletally that looks remotely close to Neanderthal. The earliest um, reliably dated archaeological evidence is... Um, somewhere around 20,000 years ago, and that's way up in the high Arctic. Um, Neanderthals never got to North America except in Hollywood studios. <laughs> uh, and uh, they're very much a regional variant. They got into parts of Russia, uh, into Uzbekistan, uh, probably didn't go much further than that. Um, their border with anatomically modern humans actually fluctuated. Uh, this is uh, actually a pretty good example of why I always emphasize that Neanderthals were not an evolutionary failure. Yeah, they're extinct today, although some of their genes survive. But in practical terms, they lasted 300,000 years. And anatomically modern humans first uh, appear in a relatively rough-looking form, at now at a little over 300,000 in North Africa. And um, by 270,000, they appear to have occupied all of Eastern and Southern Africa. By about 120,000, they have expanded, anatomically modern humans have expanded into the Middle East. They're, they're in uh, places like Israel and Syria. But then they disappear. Uh, and, and Neanderthals are down there in Israel and Syria. Before that, anatomically modern humans get into that area briefly at about 120,000 to around 90,000. And then it's back to Neanderthals until around 48,000. Uh, and so, in essence, uh, there was a period when Neanderthals were successfully able to displace anatomically modern humans from an area that they had uh, colonized. Um, and as a matter of fact, anatomically modern humans get out of Africa earlier than 60,000 years ago. They cross Southern Arabia, uh, cross India, and get into Southeast Asia, and Australia, get into Australia by at least 60,000. So modern humans were expanding rapidly in other parts of the world. Neanderthals kept them out for at least 20,000, 20, 25,000 years. So Neanderthals were, were tough dudes. They, uh, they weren't pushovers. No, uh, you like don't want to mess with uh, them. Archaic populations elsewhere. They're, 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 they're gone. But we have, you said we traced the genome of them. 
what did we discover that was really, really, really shocking to you? Um, I don't think there was that much shocking. Um, to me, it wasn't because although I come from North America, I was trained um, by archaeologists who in turn had been trained by French prehistorians. So I've always had a very pro-Neanderthal, uh, sympathetic uh, view of our dear old cousins. Um, the, 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 the genetic data show that Neanderthals were very close to us, where they're not really that distant. Uh, it shows uh, that or we have inherited some potentially beneficial genes from uh, Neanderthals in terms of our ability to withstand certain types of or forms of malnutrition. Um, we've inherited red hair from them, among other things. I like, I like redheads. Uh, I married one. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, so the only surprises were that Neanderthals weren't nearly as different as we thought they'd be genetically. Uh, the discovery of the FOXP2 gene that I already mentioned, the language gene, uh, I, I found it really satisfying uh, the, that that showed up because now we can be really very confident that they had the potential for a complex language and given the kind of adaptation they had, they would have needed a complex language. Well, <laughs> talking about language, was there ever any discoveries made with bodies like uh, anything that could be considered like for lack of a better term cave art uh yes the interesting thing is for many years it was assumed that neanderthals couldn't make any sort of art then starting in the 1920s or so there were a few complete neanderthal skeletons that showed up mostly in one site in france a place called la Ferrisie. Um, that looked like an organized graveyard, um, where in one case there was a, the excavator interpreted a series of nine geometrically oriented mounds forming sort of a point with the top of the apex uh, of the mound at the tip of the point having a stillborn fetus buried in it. Uh, and all of this looked like really uh, good evidence of symbolism, which would imply complex language. Uh, and um, then there was uh, Drakenlock Cave in, in Germany, uh, the infamous, you've heard of Clan of the Cave Bear, the oh, whole yeah. business of the cave bear cult, uh, where supposedly there were a series of cave bear skulls um, conserved by Neanderthals and presumably for some form of veneration. Um, but then people, oh, and even the, the, one of the best ones uh, was Monte Cerceo in uh, Italy, where some guys building a house in the 19, early 1950s were cutting into, uh, it was a vertical limestone cliff, and they were cutting into the back of it. And they broke into uh, uh, a, a uh, low chamber, and uh, less than three feet high. And in the back of the chamber, there were some rocks and a Neanderthal skull upside down. Upside down. Anyway, they find this upside down skull and some fragmentary Neanderthal bones in some white powder in front of it that they thought was ash. Uh, but they took, uh, they, these are construction workers, right? They took the stuff out. Oh. And 
archaeologists come back and they could only work from the description these guys gave. But at the time, the archaeologists were very pro-Neanderthal rituals. So they had a deal where this guy was cannibalized. His head was placed on a spike. They, you know, they, this was essentially Neanderthal Joffrey Baratheon's uh, <laughs> sticking, sticking his head, head on a spike and then eating the rest of his body and the charred remains were in the fire in front. And, and so that came down as a ritual feature. Well, a few years ago, people actually, ex first they took a look at the skull again and, they ex and the Neanderthal bones and excavated the feature. And the bottom line was that yes, Neanderthals had lived there, but thousands of years earlier, when the cave was a lot bigger, it had gradually filled up with sediment, so it was very low. The lower the ceiling got, the less Neanderthals used the site and the more hyenas used the site as a den. And the skull, when people took a close look at it, the uh, tooth marks on it were all hyena tooth marks. The circle of stones uh, was never attested because the workmen, uh, used, uh, workmen uh, had disturbed it. And the bones and the supposed ash, the bones all had acid etching on them where they'd gone through the digestive tract and the ash, as it turns out, was something that actually doesn't surprise me because I work in Africa and I've seen these things. Hyenas have designated toilet places where they go to defecate. And hyena feces, because they eat bones, is basically white powder and bone fragments. And so what had been a ritual feature was actually some poor Neanderthal guy whose body was dragged into the cave and consumed by hyenas and occasionally bits of them went through the hyenas digestive tract and came out the other end all right we gotta we gotta uh, we gotta rewind a second a hyena poop is ash it looks like it it's really quite quite distinctive um many years ago i was i was doing surveys in a uh a, a national park in zambia in central africa and natural grass fires are part of that ecosystem. And grass fires had burned over a very large area. And I sort of came up to a hilltop and looked at the surrounding terrain. And the ground was all black from the ash, except for four very distinct big white patches that were these, these hyena poop piles. Uh, when, when it gets wet, it just uh, sort of goes down to ash. So anyway, uh, all these are supposed ritual features, and almost all of them got debunked by the 1980s. The La Pharisee burials, the, the, the geometric mounds, for example, were effects of freeze-thaw, what are known as cryoturbation effects. The Chircheo ritual feature was a hyena den. Um, the cave bear cult, as it turns out, those are bear dens. Uh, bears repeatedly used caves as dens, and there's there's a number of caves where these big depressions in the floor where enormous cave bears have sort of dug out a hole to curl up in for the winter. And every so often, a female bear, and female bears uh, have cubs over winter so that the cub is reasonably well-developed in the spring when they come out of the den. Um, elderly female bears die, and, of course, the bugs de, you know, skeletonize the bodies. 
And a few hundred or thousand years later, another bear comes into the same location, sees this nice depression, paws the bones out of the way, sort of up against the wall of the cave and sleeps in it. And after three or four cycles of that, you end up with something look, that looks like the cave bear cult. And none of the sites where there were supposedly deliberate dis, uh, storage of cave bear skulls actually have human artifacts in them. They're all cave bear dens. So this all got shot down. But then in the last few years, we've got some spectacular examples of true Neanderthal ritual. In Spain, there are now three sites where paintings on the wall that were thought to be no more than 20,000 years old are now securely dated to over uh, uh, over 60,000, meaning they have to be they Neanderthal. They have to be Neanderthal. Yeah. And how we dated them is caves are, most many caves are still active. That is, water is seeping out of the limestone onto the surface, evaporating and depositing uh, travertine, the mineral travertine, that's that white m mineral that stalactites and stalagmites are made of, on the wall. Uh, travertine contains trace amounts of uranium. Uranium breaks down, it's an unstable element, breaks down into recognizable byproducts at a known rate, the, the half-life of it. So you can take a sample of travertine that has been deposited and the uranium in that's changing over time. You can determine when that travertine formed. And each one of these, one cave had a uh, sort of a grid pattern of red lines covered with travertine that was, um, I think it was 68,000. Another one had a handprint where Neanderthals put their hand on the wall and either spit or splashed red paint so that it left a negative print of the hand, including the short fingers, that was about 63,000, and then, uh, no, sorry, 66,000. And then in another one, they just went into a cave and painted one large stalactite red. And that then got completely covered by more minerals so that it was completely hidden. And a few years ago, some natural process caused the um, stalactite to break and the red paint had formed a little separation layer. And uh, when the part of the stalactite fell away, it exposed the separation layer. They dated that and that's about 64,000. So those are three examples of ritualized feature, clearly ritualized features in deep caves and then even more spectacular is a place called Brunichel, uh, a deep cave uh, with um, a horizontal passage going into a mountain and, and a number of hundred meters in way outside the uh, range of, of normal light. Uh, there were a whole series of stalactites and stalagmites that were uh, forming very quickly. And the, the quicker they form... Uh, the rounder and taller they get. If they form slowly, they tend to be broad and conical. And so these were a whole bunch of what looked like little sort of three-inch diameter tree trunks. Neanderthals went in there. While the cave was still active, the floor was probably wet. Broke hundreds of those off, broke them into about foot-and-a-half-long segments. And these things are heavy. This is a lot of work and then piled those segments up into uh, one circle and one sort of three-quarters, one circle that's about three meters across and one circle that's 
uh, about a meter and a half across. And then on the top of the stalagmites in a number of places, they lit grease fires. And we can still see the soot from the grease fires. So essentially, you had a feature in the cave uh, where they were creating a fence of stalagmites and stalactites. Uh, and when they were lit, they were creating a, uh, a semicircle of light, a crescent of light, in which presumably somebody was standing for some reason or some person was doing some very ritual thing, but there's absolutely nothing remotely subsistence related to that feature. And it's 178,000 years old because the cave was still active and this was being covered with travertine. And uranium thorium dating on travertine is the gold standard of absolute dating. You can get uh, margins of error of uh, less than 500 years, which when you're dealing with that time span yeah, is pretty good. astonishing yeah. accuracy. So there's good evidence that some Neanderthals were thinking complex thoughts and doing weird, inexplicable things that we sure wish we could uh, reconstruct, but at the moment we can't. I, I know what they were doing. It's one of two things. Either, <laughs> either it was the first Neanderthal stand-up comic. It's always possible. Or the first Neanderthal folk singer, which is why they turned to cannibalism. <laughs> Uh, that's actually an area, um, yeah, there's actually one example of cut marks on Neanderthal bones in that same general region. Yeah, it was the folk singer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they got him. Yeah, Neanderthal, Neanderthals were really distinctive. Uh, they had, there's there's a couple of things, uh, here I've been trying to make them all sound, sound really nice, and many of them may have been. Uh, but there were certain things that were rather unesthetic about them. Their noses. Uh, this, well, the, the big noses, but the other thing is their teeth. Uh, and I won't make bad jokes about British teeth here. <laughs> Lauren. Uh, but, uh, remember, Neander most Neanderthals' diet is, is strongly uh, meat-oriented. So they're, they're basically using their teeth to process lots and lots of pro protein. Uh, most of our dental problems, uh, dental problems in humans, are of relatively recent origin. The uh, earliest recorded tooth decay, tooth cavities, is from a skull in Zambia that was recently, finally, uh, people have been trying to date this for years, they finally got a uranium-thorium date from a little bit of travertine on the inside of the skull, and it's three, 300,000. And so that's the earliest tooth decay. Uh, African early humans were eating a lot of meat, but they were also had much more access to vegetable foods and starchy roots. And the caries bacteria um, thrives on sugars. And that's why, you know, if you're a kid, you're not eating candy because it'll rot your teeth. Um, so you get caries in Africa, but uh, you don't get it in Europe. And European Neanderthals, with that high meat diet, they, they have a lot of dental problems and a tremendous amount of dental loss, but it's all gum disease. In other words, bacteria that eats protein. And Neanderthals, many of them lost most of their teeth by age 20 or 25 to uh, gum disease. A Neanderthal in his 30s uh, would usually have uh, almost no 
premolars and molars left. And the jaws are severely resorbed from gum disease. And interestingly enough, they were trying to do something about it. There's evidence for attempts at dental hygiene. A lot of Neanderthal teeth have scratches between them that uh, we know experimentally were caused by the use of wood splinters as toothpicks. Yeah, they're flossing. And they're, they're attempting to floss, uh, unfortunately not very successfully. No. Uh, but, uh, yeah, their, their mouths were a real nightmare in, uh, in many cases. And it's a, it's a tribute to how much they were willing. Uh, and this, by the way, actually affected people earlier than Neanderthals, going back to about 1.8 million from some uh, skeletons uh, in um, uh, the Republic of Georgia. Uh, where one was an, an old man who literally lost all of his teeth. And uh, that meant, among other things, that people would have had to have been chewing his food for him. And this is a, this is a good idea. of, uh, And there are good, some examples of, of pretty elderly Neanderthals, too, meaning in their 40s. Uh, you know, life expectancy wasn't that long. Um, but uh, they're, they're clearly taking care of their people as best they can with... Uh, uh, limited medical facilities. Lauren. Yes. If 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 I ever have really bad teeth, will you chew my food for me? No, you have a cat to do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Cat's right here too. Say hi, Cleo. Hi, Cleo. Let's see the kitty. Oh, there we go. Oh, a cute cat. Now we are really uh, going over time here, so I got. Just a couple more real, real, real quick questions, and then I'm going to let you go enjoy your birthday. First one is, will you come back on and do, like, more of this? Because I could literally do this for, like, six, seven hours. I have a thousand stories, trust me. So that's we, haven't yes. even, we haven't even dealt with how, how we find out a lot of this information. Um, the, the, being an archaeologist is very much being a detective uh, when essentially the perps are all dead, <laughs> dead and gone. And as a matter of fact, a lot of this police, police forensic stuff that you see on TV was actually ripped off from archaeological methods. It's very derivative. Okay, yeah, we're definitely doing another episode. <laughs> well, I'm happy to do it. And two, well, here's one other question. I mean, you're a man of science. Oh, goodness. Pluto. No, no. Is oh, it a planet or no? No. Oh, my God. It's, it, it, I think they re resurrected it as a planet. You're talking about that Rick and Morty episode, presumably, where... Uh, uh, I where, ask everybody where, if Pluto's a planet. Where the guy argues that Pluto's a planet and gets, gets uh, kidnapped by the Plutonians who are mining their planet and causing it to shrink. Yeah, I like to but, ask everybody uh, if Pluto's a planet uh, because I am very well, pro-planet Pluto. It doesn't it doesn't clear its orbit, but I've always been pro-planet Pluto too, uh, and I think they just they they just changed their mind because they got so much static. But I, I'd have to look it up. I haven't I I, I can't confirm that. That's that's uh, perhaps wishful thinking on my part. Question number two in the speed round: How long have you been in Quebec? Uh, I came here in 1974. I got back from my doctoral dissertation work uh, in 1972, um, generated most of my dissertation in a couple of years, found out about an, an acting 
professorship, uh, a visiting professorship to replace somebody on sabbatical uh, at McGill University here in Montreal. Uh, came here. They liked what I did for them and hired me full time two years later. Okay, so you've been there over uh, 40 years. What the, hell is, what the hell is wrong with the Montreal Canadiens? Well, what's wrong with the Montreal Canadiens is they got too successful for too long and their ownership decided that they didn't have to actually pay for uh, quality players, particularly scorers. They thought they could ride one person as they're trying to ride Carey Price right now, <laughs> uh, and uh, who's unfortunately getting a bit long in the tooth. And that knee injury basically slowed him down significantly. Big and time. the end result is they've realized that they can make the same amount of money without producing uh, a winning product. Look at the Toronto Maple Leafs. Toronto hasn't won a Stanley Cup since the Pleistocene. And that's because uh, their owners figured out that they had a captive audience. They didn't really have to to uh, uh, recruit a, uh, enough talent to win. And the end result is they don't. See, I can't Hopefully, laugh um, because I'm in Buffalo and we've never won a Stanley Cup. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I, I, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll make you jealous here. When I first came to Montreal, a graduate student, uh, of mine and I were both hockey fans and we lived close to the old forum and this was in the early 70s when Canadians were in the midst of that four or five straight Stanley Cup yeah. run and they were near near the end of it fans had gotten bored you could go down to the forum they were always sold out but you could go down to the forum wait till five minutes after the game started the scalpers were trying to dump their tickets desperately and you could get seats in the red for face value in the in the bottom zone, I saw all the Hall of Famers play first, you know, right literally right in front of me. <laughs> so, and who was your favorite? Um, I was always partial to Yvonne Cournoyer and uh, Jean Beliveau. Uh, Beliveau later became a, a member of the Board of Governors at McGill. A very really? very intelligent, cultured guy, and he was saved from lung cancer by the McGill University Hospital and never forgot it. No. And he what was about, always around. What about Guy Lafleur? Come on. Oh, uh, Lafleur is great. There's no doubt about it. But I'm I'm an older guy, so I'm more partial to, uh, you know, the Richards, Cornelier, Beliveau, uh, people like that. You got a really quick story. Lauren's going to hate me for this because she hates it when I go off on sports talk. But uh, <laughs> uh, the Arguably the greatest Buffalo Sabre of all time in history uh, is French-Canadian Gilbert Perrault. Yeah, Gilbert Perrault. And I, uh, I had a couple cocktails with him one night in a, in a, in a local tavern um, <laughs> where going up on the balcony and singing at the top of our... It was just a weird night. <laughs> but all night people were coming up to him and asking him, Hey, who was better, Lemieux or Gretzky? Who was better, Lemieux or Gretzky? And every time he'd look at him and go, Guy Lafleur. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd say, no, Lemieux or Gretzky. And he'd go, Guy Lafleur, go away. <laughs> so that's what he said was the best ever. Yeah, my, my one brush with greatness was running into uh, 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 Henri Richard, Rocket Richard, at a grocery store. And the thing that impressed me about him was that, A, I'm short and I'm taller than him. <laughs> and B, um, he had enormous hands. 
uh, maybe it was being hit by sticks so many times. Yeah. They had absolutely gigantic, thick, powerful hands. Um, the other thing is he had the most garish pink Cadillac you ever saw in your <laughs> life. <laughs> oh, I love but literally, it. When, when he died, uh, there was a parade down Sherbrooke Street to his, his uh, coffin passed by, and there were just thousands of people. Oh, he I can imagine. I mean, that is, you know, I don't think Lauren quite comprehends how important hockey is to people in Quebec. Yeah, he was culturally yeah. important to Quebecois identity. He was a major feature of it. Yeah, I mean, it's big all over Canada, but, you know, Montreal, it's, it's, it's a religion. Toronto and Montreal. Although Toronto's become so bustling, you know, Montreal's still kind of got it... Uh, well, Montreal, you know, hasn't. It still thinks it's um, what seventeen sixty three. I didn't know about that. It's it's uh, it's a great place to live, uh, except now it's all closed. We're on full lockdown now at the moment. Yeah, you're keeping so. the Americans out. I've got a cottage in Vermont I haven't seen for more than a year, uh, and uh, that's. <laughs> I hope it hasn't literally disintegrated. No, uh, and and. You know, this this year has been awful with, with the lockdowns and the COVID and all the issues. And, you know, we still want to wish everyone out there our best and, you know, try to stay safe, try to stay healthy. And uh, I want to thank you for helping uh, helping us uh, relieve a little bit of this COVID stress and, and, and craziness by coming on and, uh, and doing this, uh, especially on your birthday. I mean, Lauren, what kind of guy is that? He comes on on his birthday. That was very kind. Thank you very much. I'm locked up at home, and I love to talk about this stuff. I, I gave up teaching um, in um, 2014, not because I didn't like to teach. I love it, but because I believe that older academics need to get out of the way uh, for the many really good younger academics. I was chair of our department for a decade. I, saw, uh, I oversaw many job searches, and you saw so many really good, intelligent, well-trained hardworking people who couldn't get jobs because you literally have a hundred applications for a single job. So I stopped teaching, but I don't, uh, I don't pass up ever an opportunity to talk about this stuff. No. And, and, and people like you, you <laughs> never really retire because when we were emailing back and forth and I'm going to, I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit for the audience. You're like, I'll call you in a little bit. I'm at my office at the university. I'm like, wait a second. I thought you retired. <laughs> <laughs> No, I die of boredom. Yeah, exactly. Guys it's, like you it's, cannot it's retire. Like All right, Lauren, any final thoughts before we let the good professor go? No, but I might have some later from thinking about it. Because yeah. it's all been very interesting. Because um, I, I did a bit about medieval archaeology. And there's so much more advantages of prehistoric archaeology over medieval archaeology. In that Neanderthals didn't leave you big, massive ledgers telling you everything that you needed to know. <laughs> well, that's, there's ups and downs to that. It, and is it, at some point, if we do this again, I'd, I'd like to talk about the nature of the early archaeological record and why it's so difficult. Yeah, there's not an if. That's, that's when we do it again. To, uh, that is, yeah. Uh, conclusions. I've already in essence, mentioned elements of this, talking about how some things that appear to be self-evident, like the Monte Cherceo ritualized skull on a stick 
thing that uh, were really us projecting what we wanted to see on the data. And, and there are many pitfalls and traps that we have to work very resolutely to try to avoid. Absolutely. But right now we're going we're gonna to call it a, um, an interview because this, the site will not let me put up too long of an episode. So <laughs> promise us we'll do this again. I will definitely stay in touch. And uh, we're going to set up part two and talk about the archaeology of it. Okay, good. My pleasure. Oh, Dr. Michael Bisson, ladies and gentlemen. And thank you. And please have a happy birthday and go enjoy it and Absolutely. tell your wife not to hate me for this. Uh, uh, I, I will definitely tell her. And by the way, I am not the world authority on Neanderthals. I just like to talk a lot about <laughs> many other people who are better than I am at this. That's the modesty, folks. All right, Professor, thank you so much, and we will talk soon. Good. See you then. See you later. Bye. Happy birthday. Bye. (laughs) Thanks a lot. All right, Lauren, what did you think about that? That was amazing. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed listening to that. Yeah, You're a Neanderthal. I'm a Neanderthal. We're all Neanderthals. Well, especially you and I, because of the hair. Yeah, but I'm much taller than Neanderthal, because, you know, I'm 6'5". Yeah. And, and, you know, I got these long, giant man hands. <laughs> They'd have just used you to reach a pie for them. Okay, first off, <laughs> when you, when he was talking about them painting their hand on the in the cave, were you not picturing, like, if I was the Neanderthal, it would be just with the middle finger up? I, I was actually thinking, what would Theo do? And I'm also thinking, but you're way too young to get this joke, that uh, apparently Neanderthal designed the Jay Giles Band album cover. Yes, folks, obscure references that Lauren doesn't get on Transatlantic History Rambling. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're definitely doing a part two of that with the archaeology Absolutely. because, you know, he's uh, he's, in, he's Indiana Jones. He is. And, uh, yeah, wow. And he comes in on his birthday. That, that was so cool. I mean, tell you something. When I emailed him about coming on the show, and this is why I knew he was going to be a great guest, I, uh, you know, sent an email saying who I was and asking him to come on the show. And uh, he responded with, sounds intriguing. I'd love to. I love talking about Neanderthal because I'm almost as old as them. <laughs> so I knew he had the sense of humor for this show right away. Yeah, he's he's fantastic, and uh, I can't I can't wait to talk to him again. And uh, I hope everybody else loves. Yeah, I love educating people, and especially educating myself. Yes. And speaking of education, I know we're running way over time. How's school going? It's going fine. Um, still on winter break, so I've got a couple of essays to hand in. Uh, the end of term was a little bit frantic because I had to hand in an essay. Um, the the day that the day that term finished because the the lecturer was going away on maternity leave and wanted everything in to be marked before she went to maternity leave. And folks, Lauren's out there busting her hiney trying to get these papers done. And you know what I do? I book more and more guests. I am terrible, aren't I? Yes, yes, you are. You're horrible. That's all right because of the time difference it kind of works out okay. Because I wouldn't be doing. I wouldn't be writing at 10 o'clock at night anyway. Yeah, well, speaking of time difference, it is getting late there for you. So I am going to go feed Cleo and let you get to sleep. 
Yes. So, folks, tune in next time for another crazy episode of Transatlantic History. We got some big surprises coming up for you. But for now, from Brian in Buffalo. Lord in Swansea. Good night. Good night. There were these, these Aina poop piles.